Welcome to the Impossible Healthcare Podcast, where we talk to the experts about pressing topics in healthcare. I'm Samir Berry. And I'm Mike Albert, and we are both doctors at Cedar sinai in Los Angeles. Welcome to another episode of Impossible Healthcare. We are wrapping up our series on startups and digital health, and we get to speak to Chris Hogue of Propeller Health. Really fascinating individual. We spend a lot of time discussing his journey into digital health as an industry with stops along the way in investment banking, the pharmaceutical industry, data science. He's got a wealth of knowledge and a great background. Mike, what do you think about the episode? Yeah, Samir, I really enjoyed it. Uh, I think Chris provides a lot of um, experience and insight into the digital health industry. Uh, he's been in this space for a long time. I, I really enjoyed uh, his moments talking, discussing, you know, how to build a successful healthcare brand. And that must be founded on trust. Trust has to be at the core of the company's culture from the day it's founded. It can't be something that's manufactured because the patients and consumers are not dumb. And so whenever you're dealing with uh, a company that interacts with patients, that must be at the core of, of what you do on a day-to-day basis. What, what were some of the things that you really appreciated in the episode, Samir? To hit on everything you just said, Propeller Health makes connected inhalers. And as a provider, you and I have both seen patients with asthma and COPD in the clinic. It's really tough in a 15, 30-minute office visit to understand how they're using their inhalers, what the temperature, pollution, location, are they using them at home more or at work? And so the type of data that they're able to collect at Propeller was just really fascinating from a provider perspective and how obvious that could improve our ability to care for these patients. So it was really interesting from from Chris's perspective to hear how they're making meaningful use of that data. Very interesting interplay between health policy, our current ongoing pandemic, and connected technology and digital health. Yeah, let's jump right in, Samir. Let's do it. We just wanted to take time to mention that in the time it took to tape and edit this episode, Chris has left Propeller Health after six years. We're really excited to see what's in store for Chris. We're really excited, Michael and I, to, to be able to have you on our show and talk about your story. You have a very diverse background, both inside and outside healthcare, which I think will be very interesting. But I wanted to get a little bit more about your personal history. It sounds like your, your first job after finishing your MBA was in investment banking. Could you tell us a little bit about that and perhaps the impact that those experiences had on your work in healthcare and as a startup? Yeah, absolutely. So I went to business school after working in a lab for a while. So I majored in biology in college and um, decided that I probably wasn't meant for the lab. So ended up going back to business school. And uh, basically, if you don't know what you're going to do when you go to business school, you pretty much end up as a consultant or an investment banker. Uh, And so I went into investment banking in healthcare in New York, um, which was a pretty extreme experience. Uh, I thought it was. one of the competitions there is really who can who can work harder. And I'd always thought that I had the ability to work pretty hard, so it sounded pretty good. And uh, it was just really intense. All the stories that you hear are pretty much true. I worked for a fairly notorious healthcare group out there with some uh, crazy characters, uh, but it's a very accelerated learning. I mean, when you're working that much, you you learn more. When you create that many pitch decks, you you learn a lot. And then also the, the best thing about it was just learning from very high level uh, people. And one story in particular, I had to do a project 
on an HMO and I had no idea how managed care worked. And I had to go down and this poor guy who had one of the, the dons of managed care and had been doing this for so long, had to just explain to me piece by piece how it all worked so I could write something called a bank book so we could go do an offering. And still much of what I know about managed care is from this guy. His name was Herb Fritsch. So it's a great learning experience. And um, but I also I think I probably learned uh, as much about people and incentives as I as I did about uh, healthcare or anything else. And then uh, my my girlfriend uh, at the time, my wife now, we both just wanted a change, and so we ended up quitting our jobs and moving to San Francisco. Uh, and that was back in 2006. And I ended up getting a, a job at a small-ish biotech company called CV Therapeutics. And uh, it was I really just wanted to like the people that I worked with and, and worked for and had a great experience there. I was kind of straddling the science side and the commercial side and sort of a commercial strategy or new product planning role. What did CV Therapeutics do? I know they were sold to Gilead, but when you were there and when you started there, what were they doing? What was your role? So yeah, CVT was, had one commercial product called Renexa, a generic name Renolazine, and it was for chronic angina, so cardiovascular disease and ischemia. And it was super interesting because it was a new mechanism of action, uh, but also made it really hard to sell because uh, it was a, a new mechanism people didn't fully understand. And so the whole company uh, was pretty much wrapped into that drug, how to commercialize it and, and how to look at it. Uh, they hired me into a role called new product planning, where basically I got to look at everything else. So most people are focused on the next two or three years of, of Renexa. I got to focus on what to do with it. In the future, lifecycle management, I uh, worked on the pipeline, I worked on business development. So pretty much anything we were looking at, I got to do a lot of like the commercial assessments, understand the market, understand the treatment algorithms, how doctors were making certain decisions around treatment. It was a very broad and, and really interesting position. How does someone go from, from that background and jump into digital health? How did that transition happen for you? Uh, so you just jump off the ledge, I think. Um, so I had, I had moved to San Francisco in 2006 and was working at CVT. And then we got bought by Gilead. So I was at Gilead at the time in, a, in the commercial strategy group, group running a cardiovascular and respiratory commercial strategy and had just gotten involved in some of the communities out here in the Bay Area uh, and on Twitter. Twitter was really important for me in meeting some of these folks, but around what is now digital health. Um, back then, I was in you know quantified self groups and just groups of people that were really thinking a lot about the future and technology and data uh, improving how we do healthcare. And when you're out here and you meet all these people and people start starting companies, it just I don't know, kind of weirdly feels normal. Uh, and I got pretty lucky in some of the people uh, that I met along the way. I've just I've just been very fortunate in, in meeting people that uh, have helped me out and. Um, one of them ended up uh, being one of my investors. So a guy named John Lilly, who is a, a partner at Greylock or was a partner at Greylock and before that was the CEO of Mozilla, he somehow saw a slide presentation that I had done and put online. And I had a friend, you know, ping me and say, hey, you know, John Lilly just tweeted out your slides. And I naively had to look up who John Lilly was and ended up talking to him for a year. And he just became really helpful while I was at Gilead. And uh, and then eventually um, helped me get started and funded the company and became a great mentor. You're talking about 100 plus? 
That's right. That was uh, the first company. So I started, uh, yeah, 100 plus in 2011. And tell us about 100 plus for people who may not be uh, as familiar with it. Yeah. So this was back in 2011. And, and back then there was a lot of belief in the promise of bringing real, like bringing consumer tech to healthcare. So if we could just build things that were really well designed and really engaging, we could change behavior and and make being healthy not so hard for people. And so that was really the concept of, of 100 plus was uh, to make health not feel so hard and, and focus on little things that we do in our daily lives, little choices we make day in and day out. And that's what really adds up into, into you know, good health and, and long life. Uh, and so we had created a, a little game mechanic called a life score, which was a dynamic longevity calculator. We were constantly updating that based on the healthy opportunities that you conducted or, or executed in the, in the app. How did you join Propeller eventually, which is what we want to spend the majority of the time talking about, but how did that turn into your role as a chief commercial officer at Propeller Health? Sure. So we, I, we had done 100 plus for for a little while, um, and the challenge there was we back then we had the belief that we built something and we built an audience and made it really engaging, then the business model would follow, and and that turns out to really not be the case. Um, and so we we really struggled commercially. We started selling you know corporate wellness and things, and ended up uh, selling bringing that company into Practice Fusion, where I spent a bit of time building up the data group there. We had been using some practice fusion data at 100 plus and, and kind of knew their knew their data well and i wanted to st- i was starting to look for for something different i really missed being on the front lines with you know talking to doctors and talking to to users or patients directly and i had met uh, david van sickle who's one of the co-founders of propeller a, a long time ago um, at i think it was probably 2011 or 12 back then there weren't really that many companies and so I think I knew all of the companies in digital health that had formed around that time and ended up meeting David at a really geeky healthcare conference called Health Data Palooza in DC. And we just stayed in touch over the years. I really always liked what they were doing. And then when I started thinking about uh, making a change, I started talking to him. So at Propeller Health, you know, you guys have focused primarily on two diseases, uh, that being asthma and COPD and coming up with this I think is a really cool and innovative uh, solution to kind of monitor the disease in the individual, um, which is a, a sensor that attaches to basically any inhaler, commercially available inhaler. And uh, you get all sorts of data on the usage of that, the adherence uh, with the medications, um, environmental uh, considerations, so that you almost build out this profile of the individual and, and their disease. And I'm just curious, you know, uh, why, why do you think that, uh, why was this important to sort of build out this entire digital uh, profile of these individuals uh, in order to better control the diseases um, that you targeted? Yeah, I think it really starts at the company's beginning and, and with David. So David, by background, is a respiratory epidemiologist and has done a bunch of cool things, including working at the CDC. And um, when he was doing a postdoc, uh, what they really struggled with and what a lot of uh, epidemiologists or any kind of health researcher struggles with is lack of lack of good data. And so he had a question, what would happen if we could track passively how people use their medications in the real world uh, just out in their normal day? 
and so started you know building sensors for inhalers and it turns out that you know you you can passively measure how somebody's using their medicines and it ends up being a really important and valuable signal as you point out um, we there's two types of inhalers usually that people have so one is a daily controller inhaler uh, that they take uh, to try to prevent symptoms. And there you end up with really granular data on their adherence. And so obviously you can do a bunch of things to try to improve their daily medication adherence. The other signal though is their rescue inhaler or albuterol. And that's what they take as needed when they have symptoms. And so this is a user just passively really telling you that they have symptoms or are out of breath. We can collect that signal and you start to see these patterns of how often somebody's using their meds, if they're waking up in the middle of the night or during the day, if it's increasing in use or decreasing, all of these just turn out to be really valuable signals that tell you quite a lot about who's controlled and who's not controlled. Yeah. And I think that, you know, uh, in asthma management, it's always been about having that understanding of, of uh, how well the patient's being controlled because there's always been this sort of stepped algorithm for treatment. And so um, you bring up the point that we really haven't had the data to make informed decisions on how to manage these people's disease because often we didn't know, you know, how many exacerbations they were having, how often were they using it at night, all of these different elements that kind of comprise their uh, disease severity and, and whether or not it's currently being well controlled. And so I think, as you mentioned, having these other elements, these other granular data components really informs, um, you know, disease uh, care and, and, and what treatments may or may not be effective at the individual level. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we hear just many, many anecdotes that are all similar that, you know, people get into a routine and they'll go in and talk to their doctor as they do regularly. And the doctor asks, you know, how are you doing? The patient says, I'm fine. Um, using my inhalers the way I always have. And then you end up with objective data about how that patient is doing. And the doc will look at it oh my gosh, you know, you're using your rescue inhaler three times a day, every day, which is completely unacceptable and completely uncontrolled. But to the patient, they're not getting worse, right? They feel like acceleration or deceleration. They're not using it more and they're not using it less. And to them, that's controlled. But now with this objective data, the doc looks at it and says, you know, knows that they can do better. They need a higher dose of treatment or they need to be stepped up. And so the promise, one of the promises of collecting data like this is that you would hope to uh, close the loop faster. So get the patient on the right dose of the right step of therapy much more quickly because you have this objective data. It's very obvious the the value that that would add in, in a clinical interaction. So I think that's that's great. A lot of the digital health startups like uh, Livongo and Verda and Omada, uh, they're really hyper-focused on clinical validation right now and running RCTs to validate what their their product does. Um, do you think that that sort of clinical validation is something that always has to occur, that every startup should be looking at to accomplish? How do, how do you think about that at Propeller? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think it's absolutely core. Um, you know, whether, whether an intervention is chemistry, you know, small molecule or biology or technology, if you, if you say you're going to improve a clinical endpoint, you have to prove it. And one of the, the reasons I joined Propeller was that Based on the, the folks who were at the company, there's a lot of people who come out of research, both academic research and clinical research, 
And it was just sort of understood that this was going to be a new clinical intervention and it had to be validated and tested. So when I was talking to David about joining, one of the things, there's a couple of things that stood out to me. One was they had gotten FDA clearance in 2012. The very first program conducted after FDA clearance was a 500 person randomized trial done at Dignity out here in California. And so that was ongoing at the time I joined. And then they had a list of all of these other investigator sponsored studies that were going. And it felt very much like a little biotech company to me. It looked like a medical affairs, you know, list of investigator sponsored studies. And I think one of the things that we have done well is around clinical validation. We now have something like 25, 29 published papers. Uh, we're constantly presenting abstracts at, uh, at conferences, the big respiratory conferences. And it's something that we've really just invested and focused a lot on. And some of, most of those, or many of them, are trying to prove something, validate that propeller works. But now more and more, we're, we're putting things out there that we might just learn uh, from the population that would be useful in clinical practice. For instance, we just put out an abstract that showed you know, when, when, you take, when you puff on your inhaler, you're supposed to wait 30 seconds in between the two puffs. And we know exactly when these things happen and found that basically nobody does that. So there's a huge technique problem out there. And we put that out as an abstract and it really, doctors really liked it. It helped them understand, you know, the use of these medicines in daily life and what they need to focus on. So I, I would say that we, uh, I would pro probably try to say we were one of the pioneers at really diving deep in clinical validation. And, and I think set a bar that most people are, are, are striving for now. And it's one of the things we feel really good about here at Propeller. One of the challenges in doing something like that, whether it's Propeller or the companies working on metabolic disease, is that these patients are a very heterogeneous group of people, right? There's not a really typical asthma patient. It affects all different races, all different socioeconomic classes. Of course, there's you know certain trends, but it, it can affect a lot of different type of people. How do you connect with such a diverse group of patients, whether it's from a sales perspective or designing a user interface, there's not a typical patient profile that you can rely on. So how, how does Propeller make sure that their user interface and application and sales plan fits with such a diverse group of people? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. It's really hard uh, because for, for sure we know that one size doesn't fit all in healthcare. And I think as we've all evolved, you know, for a while when the quote unquote concept, the concept of digital therapeutics came up. It's, you know, just, just like a drug, but it's going to be technology, but, but it's not, it's, it's an app and it's an experience and it has to be engaging. And so it has to be tailored. And so what we do starting out, we, we just talk to people a lot and we are very data driven. So we're doing user research all the time. Um, just talking to people, we analyze what people are doing in the app and the outcomes that they're seeing. Um, and then we try to focus on the ability to personalize the experience somewhat. And, and this is, you know, a forever process of, of personalizing it. But the way we designed and built the app is that it makes it possible for different people to see different things in the app. So all content, all features can be triggered uh, based on something we know. And so the, the highest level, it's asthma or COPD. Those are different experiences. They come into the same app. But then, then people will see different different things. When we learn that pollen is a trigger, ozone is a trigger, uh, we'll show specific content about ozone and pollen. Our goal was 
not for someone not to come in and feel like it was supposed to be for everybody, like WebMD, here's all the p- potential triggers and all the things you could do about it. We really try to struggle to make it feel like it's a, about you. Um, the other is just to make sure you're really diverse in who you talk to um, in terms of everything, you know, race, ethnicity, socioeconomic status, geogra- geography. We try to get a wide range and then make it friendly and understandable to everybody. So everything that we go in gets screened for fifth or sixth grade uh, reading level. There's nothing in there that's going to be off-putting to people. I think it's just a struggle. It takes work and it takes a lot of dedication. Yeah. And uh, Chris, one of the things that I think is a real hurdle and challenge for any digital health company is this idea, particularly if you have a device um, that you, you know, that the patient's interfacing with is, is making sure that they are using it uh, month after month. And I think, you know, people have talked about this issue of digital fatigue occurring over time, particularly if the device requires, you know, a patient's own sort of intrinsic motivation to use. And I think one of your real distinct advantages um, is that you really rely upon um, and leverage the patient's use of the inhaler. Um, and so you're able to gather a lot of this data passively and you don't have to sort of be constantly motivating the patient to utilize your, your device. Um, do you think that's strategically a real advantage for you guys over, say, some other companies that, that have issues with patient retention over long term? Absolutely. When I was uh, thinking about joining Propeller and talking to David and Greg and the rest, Greg's the other co-founder, the CTO and other co-founder and other members of the team, I had done my own evaluation of different companies and, you know, came to a point of view of what I thought would be a good spot. One of them, one of the criteria was sensor company. At 100 plus, it was all about self-report, getting people to do surveys and answer questions and it is very, very difficult. And the problem is, there's two problems really. One is engagement ongoing, but the other is whether somebody didn't tell you something or whether they didn't do it. So the, the ability to get a true negative. And when you have sensors, you know that they did or didn't take the medicine because the sensor will tell you. And that was a huge advantage uh, and one of the re- reasons, you know, I was really drawn uh, to Propeller. And so we we see that where we try really hard that the user doesn't have to change their behavior that much. We want to incent and, and drive positive behavior change like around adherence or so on. But for just the system to work, all they have to do is put a sensor on their med and use their meds as they normally do. And then we try to push all the complexity down into, you know, our analysis and analytics so that they get a really simple experience based on that that information. Uh, but we absolutely see much higher retention rates anytime you have a device uh, than you than you do with just an app. That's uh, that's a, a known fact. And one of the things I'm I when I was researching for this episode I was really fascinated by that I haven't really seen any other digital health company uh, pursue is this partnership you had with the city of Louisville, and you guys kind of co-developed this public health initiative. I was hoping you could talk a little bit about that and why you know why that was important for you guys and your mission at Propeller Health. Yeah, happy to. That that's still one of the best programs I think I've I've worked on maybe in my career. Um, we Propeller based on um, the founding. So as I said, David's a respiratory epidemiologist. We have a real 
culture around public health and um, trying to help as many people as possible. And that the data that we collect on an individual level level is helpful to that individual, but on a macro aggregated level should be useful to the whole community. And so Louisville, that program was grant funded. So Robert Wood Johnson Foundation gave, gave a grant to the city of Louisville. And the goal was to see if we could use these new signals, these sensors and digital to provide any new information about the public health. And Louisville is a really tough city to have asthma. It changes anywhere from second, third, fourth, worst city in the country uh, to live with asthma. And so the goal was to go enroll a bunch of people in one specific geography, help them as the, the system does, but then aggregate all the data and see if we could learn anything that the city could use then to help their asthma problem more, more broadly. And so we enrolled a little over a thousand patients, tracked them for a year, two years, collected a lot of data. And we ended up really seeing where hotspots were in the city. So you could see places where there's absolutely increased risk on a per capita basis. And then we tried to understand why. And so learn things like there's traffic patterns where trucks are going that led to these, some of these hotspots. And there was a, a lack of green space and trees in some areas, and that led to hotspots. And we could model it and see that for, you know, for every square meter of tree canopy, asthma risk went down by X. Uh, even then looking, because we were collecting environment data also, what the different uh, components were uh, in the environment, um, pollutants and so on, and how those were impacting asthma risk. And we were able to give that information back to the city. So we created an alerting system for them. So we modeled asthma risk based on the environment. They could send out warnings when air was bad and was going to be hard for asthma patients. They did things like greening initiatives where they planted trees in areas where there weren't any to try to minimize risk. They did traffic curbing, so rerouted truck routes and so on. Uh, And eventually we hope, you know, they'll try to use it to to do emission standards reduction. Uh, But it was a very interesting um, program and really with the roots of Propeller as a public health uh, initiated company. The fun fact that Propeller's original name was Asmapolis, and it was really about mapping where asthma happens. And that was the primary goal at the beginning, was to try to use the data from many people to help every individual with asthma. No, it's it's so important. I would say the majority of what affects individuals' health is from the environment, and it's something that's very tough for us as clinicians to have any sort of effect on or even measure in our 20-minute office visit. You know, what you just told me, Chris, I can't help but think about the ongoing coronavirus and the potential for something like Propeller to even predict outbreaks before people are diagnosed if they happen to be using their rescue inhalers in pockets of areas uh, more frequently than normal. Is this something that Propeller's thinking about? Uh, what are your thoughts on that type of identification? There's a lot of talk people have heard about how Google can predict the spread of the flu better than the CDC can. There's algorithms online that can predict people who are depressed just by their behavior online. And of course, Propeller has a plug into hardware for a inhaler. And the benefit to being able to predict respiratory outbreak it's not such a far-fetched idea. Is that something you have thought about personally or, or Propeller as a company? 
Yes, absolutely. So we've we've uh, thought and looked at this. We think that there's a lot of value when you aggregate enough people and their data uh, to be able to do really interesting things around pharmacosurveillance. Uh, we, we did a bunch of work when we looked at, there were big wildfires here. I'm in our San Francisco office and we had big wildfires in, in, in California, just north of us. Could we pick up any increase in risk? I think the question usually comes down to density of data. So where do you have enough people and enough data in one spot that you can tease out signal from the noise. So we were just talking about coronavirus today and, and looking at where do we, what cities or what places do we have enough density where we think we might be able to, is it possible you might be able to see signal from the noise? Um, but in most places, in most of these products, there's probably not enough density yet. Um, but if, if, you, if you can imagine a, a future state where everybody's inhaler was censored, you know, the sensors built directly into the plastic housing of the inhaler, and they're all connected to the network, absolutely. You, you will be able to see outbreaks. Uh, you'll be able to see little pockets, hot spots, maybe due to environment, maybe it's due to a local polluter or something. Uh, you can absolutely see this if you generate enough density in, in one location. There's, there's the opposite side to this equation. The article that you just actually posted on Twitter about Alibaba issuing everyone in China a green, yellow, or red flag on their Alibaba app. People can't even get in and out of cities. They can't use the train. They can't go into grocery stores unless they have a green symbol on their app. People are unsure how, they, how they've how they allocated people, but it may be whether you came in contact with somebody who was diagnosed or who came you know near the Wuhan area. It's all obviously based on location. And I think people with a red box are actually not allowed to leave their home. And because it's attached to the phone, it'll alert the police if you leave home. So what are your thoughts on, obviously, this is an extreme example, but on patient privacy with regards to connected information, including things like connected inhalers, there's obviously an opportunity either through government overreach or hacking for this to be used in a bad way. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that was a very interesting thread about the Alibaba app and um, made me made me definitely think and ponder. I mean, these are powerful tools we're playing around with, right? We can collect so much information about individuals, and anytime you have a powerful tool, it doesn't matter what it is. It could be atomic energy and atomic bomb. There's a positive side to it and a negative side to it. And so the question is how we use them and determine what's appropriate in society. I think for digital health, it, it's just a, it's an absolute matter of transparency and getting better at helping people understand in very simple terms, not through a complicated TOS that people agree to, but where are data going and, and how are they being used and, uh, and so on. We, we have a lot of permissions in the app. We allow people to shut down sharing, shut down location tracking, shut down whatever they want. In actuality, people don't change them that much. And, and so should we be pushing people harder to, to make sure they understand it? It's absolutely something that we talk about and how to you know, be on a path where we're continually getting better uh, and getting more transparent and, and more clear. Some of these are, are really hard problems, you know, just implementing things around right to be forgotten. You know, these, are, these are kind of hard technical problems. And so they just have to be solved over time. You know, something we've talked about, you need almost like a transparency roadmap in addition to your 
asthma roadmap and your COPD roadmap and your physician roadmap, just a plan to just keep getting better over time. Because uh, I, I do think that the standards in, in society and among the public are changing uh, probably appropriately. And so we just have to keep up and keep leading. I've, I've always wondered, I sort of had this, have this hypothesis that, you know, the public face is always, yes, we want to have our data. We don't want it to be misused. We want all digital health companies companies to be good custodians of our data. But I, I'm, I always catch myself wondering, do people really want their data to be protected and, and, and not utilized? I mean, we put all of our information on the internet. It's being used every second, you know, and, and I've just... I just have to wonder how serious are people um, in in those claims, and uh, you know I think you obviously still have an obligation as a company, but I, I'm just curious uh, in terms of your thoughts. Like you mentioned, no one really changes those privacy uh, settings. If if you have any additional thoughts on that, no, I think that's why we really try to focus on the concept of transparency. Maybe not. Uh, control or guide, you know, this, this, you can't send it to Google, but you can send it to segment. I don't think individuals are ever going to get into the permissions around what tools can be used because data have to go there. I do think it, it is very appropriate to allow people to understand um, where it's going and how it's being used. And it's up to us and, and the community to explain those reasons, right? That we have we we send data back to say dignity. And the reason is because it's going to help your doctor in your care. Um, right. and, and so that they know where it's going. I think you know it brings up for me the the big kerfuffle recently around Ascension and Google, right? That that all this data was going into Google for I was right. kind of a contrarian online, I think, because I thought it sounded like a really good idea. They've, they've come out saying they support, you know, 50 EMRs or something, and they need a way to search them all and, and do stuff. And it was fascinating to me, the the negativity online, which I, which I totally get. And I think a lot of it there was around transparency also. I think people have no idea how it actually works, where the number of business associate agreements that any health system or any product or company signs uh, where, where data are going. And so I think we just have to be more explicit and more clear and more transparent that, yes, the data are going to these different places, but there are reasons why, and, and this is why you should be okay with it. Well, I think it's all about intentions, right? I think if you could assure patients that, yes, we're going to share your data anonymously in an aggregated way in the name of science to help find a cure, to help better diagnose or come up with faster ways to diagnose, I would argue most people are going to be okay with that. But at the same time, if this propeller data got in the hands of a life insurance company and they said, oh, you know, we're not going to pay for that claim or we're not going to cover this this claim you filed because you were non-compliant with your medication. Of course, I'm being yeah. a little facetious there, but you could see where that could make people a little bit iffy about who gets that data. So I really think it's about intentions Absolutely. when it comes to people's ability or their desire to share their data. I, I totally agree. I mean, it comes down to brand, right? Uh, any company, any com- any company, especially in healthcare, that doesn't have trust as a core component of their brand uh, that they're trying to achieve is, is going to get in, in trouble or, or not be super successful because it, it is very complicated. You know, you can't, I don't know, maybe, maybe you can. I don't believe that ever 
an individual user is going to understand or know every way you're using the data. You want to be transparent and try to explain it, but it's pretty can get pretty complex. And so instead, mm-hmm. you need this brand where they know that they trust you, that you're a good steward, and you're going to use it for in their best interest, and you're going to you know, be transparent about where it's going. I don't think that people will really want to get in and, and say, you know, I want to shut this knob off and turn this knob up. I think they just want to know and they want to trust. Uh, and that just is a, is a brand concept. How do you do that as a startup that's just getting into healthcare? How do you look at building trust? I think first and foremost, it's culture. So you have to have a culture where you actually believe this stuff. You actually believe that patients have a lot of, you know, it's their data. It's very sensitive. We have a really strong responsibility to, that they entrusted us with their data and we have to use it appropriately and effectively. And then I, I think it just comes through in your actions. I think it's impossible to fake. I think it just has to be like a really core belief of the company. If you, if you look at some of these companies that have gotten themselves into, into trouble through breaches of trust, I, you look at the cultures of those companies and, and you know exactly how it happened, right? There's, you, you can try to fake it and try to write good stuff and good messaging, but if you don't believe it through and through as a company, it's not going to come across in your actions. And so I, I think that it, it just comes from a very, very uh, fundamental place at the core of the company. Yeah, I think that's an incredible point, Chris. And I hope a lot of people listening take that to heart that, you know, culture is so important and how you start the company oftentimes can uh, leave a lasting impression on the consumer or patient. One thing I want to jump to real fast is is talking about value. I mean, it's part of every conversation in healthcare now. Um, It's really hard. Uh, I think I saw you talk about it's really hard to, to enter into any type of contractor agreement that's fee-for-service, everything's value-based, right? And I'm just wondering, um, you know, based upon Propeller's direction kind of in the next year, um, where are you guys seeing most of your growth? I mean, is this in working with self-insured companies? Are these uh, value-based contracts that you guys are working on? Are you guys wanting to expand direct-to-consumer more? What's what's kind of your uh, strategic approach um, in the coming year? Sure, we've had we've had a we've been around a while, so we've tried a lot of different channels. Uh, the ones that we tend to focus on are uh, via the clinician or through a health system. So we have a lot of health system partners uh, that are distributing, helping distribute Propeller, and then using it in practice. Uh, and then we have payers in the in the ecosystem, and and there we will go and, and generally directly contract with those payers. Uh, we're starting to do a little bit with employers, but mainly through other parties that are uh, reselling us or, or bringing us through. And then we've, we've enrolled a lot of people uh, off of Facebook, direct-to-consumer, and a lot of that was to support other um, programs. So we've, we've had a lot of different um, models. The, the challenge has always been, so we directly contract with everybody. So we've gone to a payer and we'll directly contract. So it's not traditional fee-for-service coverage. It was, we're going to go contract with payer X and they uh, will do a screen and see who they want enrolled in Propeller and then we'll work with them on getting them enrolled. Similarly, if we go to a large integrated delivery network or health system, they will contract directly with them uh, to deploy it. And there's different reasons why they might want to deploy Propeller. And we, we started this pretty early. We started commercializing in 2012 
And back then, you know, value-based was all the rage. And we figured if we built these direct relationships and contracted with them, you know, by now, everything would be value-based and we would be in, in a good spot. Uh, the fact is, and that's just not true. And, you know, <laughs> the concept of value-based is there. It's not overwhelming and it's definitely not fast. And so we spend a lot more time these days talking about additional paths that are traditional fee-for-service. So we'll still continue to directly contract. And we even talk to people about value-based agreements. And we can talk more about that and why they're really challenging to actually get implemented and get, get signed. Uh, but right now, I'm focusing a lot more on traditional reimbursement paths. So coding um, and, and payment. So coding coverage and payment. And for I think for a very long time, we're going to live in this mixed world of mixed value-based and mixed fee-for-service especially if you're going the clinical adoption path. So if you go to any doctor, they are absolutely in some value-based agreements. I will bet you they probably don't understand them fully. Um, I've heard you know, comments, uh, some, some months I get a check from Aetna, and some months I don't. Some months it's actually a big check, and they don't really know why or what they're doing differently. But still, you know, 50, 60, 70% of their patient panels probably fee-for-service. And so it's really hard to get a doc or a clinic to implement something new, a new workflow, any kind of new tool, if it doesn't really apply to all their patients. And so we just have to solve that. And, and a lot of digital health companies are in the same boat now. There's a lot more top talk of traditional coding and coverage these days than there was even a year or two ago. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. And, and I think the whole concept of value is, is uh, pretty interesting as well. I mean, what, what is value? I think it's different to the payer. It's different to the provider and the patient, right? And so it depends on what perspective yeah. you're talking about. And I think, you know, I, as I look at a lot of what you guys are doing now, a lot of um, your the studies you're generating and looking at have to do with cost and looking at sort of the cost effectiveness of the, the uh, treat, you know, the, the device and the sensor and the service you're providing. Um, and, and that may be more relevant to, you know, someone who's a payer or someone who's self-insured. Um, whereas, uh, as you mentioned originally, your, your focus was on really proving the efficacy of, of this solution and generating large randomized controlled trials. That's probably more relevant to the provider, you know, wanting to make sure that this fundamentally yeah. works. That's the first question. I'm just curious in terms of sort of balancing, uh, the value um, what, you know, what, what are you guys trying to do? Sure. Well, one like funny anecdote, I guess on this, but we, we have pitched value-based and by that, I mean, we will go at risk for cost or, or utilization rate, like hospitalization rate or asthma and COPD. We've generated quite a lot of data and we, it's pretty consistent. So we feel very comfortable with the outcomes that we see. We've gotten into conversations. So one in particular, we are in the conversation and pitched. We will go at risk for, for utilization rate. Um, app, you know, we're happy to, to do it. And they got all excited. Uh, that's great. Uh, we keep having conversations. Then it comes back and it's like, all right, well, what population is this going to be on? We have to really make sure it's like the right population. And then man, how do we set the baseline? Like, what are we even going to measure here? And then, oh yeah, well, we have these six other programs ongoing. How are we going to know that the outcome was solely due to propeller and maybe not some of these other things that are going on? And they literally came back to us and asked us to price on a PMPM. So across the whole population, right? Not, not based on utilization, because then how are we going to budget it? How can we compare it to these other programs that we have ongoing? 
and I like I just couldn't believe it. I'm like, let me get this straight. So we we pitched you a program where we will only get paid if we reduce hospitalization rate, and you want to price it on a PM PM a couple you know cents across the whole population, whether people use it or not, and whether it's effective. Yes. Okay. Got it. Uh, it was just it was, it was just unbelievable. Uh, and so we, you know, you, you absolutely have to, uh, to your other question, you absolutely have to balance clinical. I think you start out, I think there's a series here. You have to start out with clinical credibility. If you can't prove that the, that the intervention works on a clinical basis, uh, you're kind of sunk. And so everyone should start with clinical validation and using, you know, standard clinical endpoints that, so we're talking the same language as the doctors and the drug companies and the other med tech right. companies. Then, then you see a progression where you've done that, and now you start really looking at cost data. I've been surprised, really. I come from pharma, and I, I would say that the burden of proof for the bar is higher for digital health than it is for traditional pharma or med tech. You know, we don't just have to prove that it clinically works. Then you also have to prove that, prove that you can implement it and you can keep people retained. And now people are asking for like hard cost data on ROI. The bar is getting really, really high here. And I, I think it's appropriate. It just it's sort of frustrating sometimes looking at other industries and it's like, well, or other sec sectors, like how did they get that thing approved and adopted? I know for sure that that thing does not have a positive ROI, but it was, you know, <laughs> clinically meaningful, clinically, clinically necessary. But for us, we have to check all those boxes. Clinically, clinically validated, you can implement it, you can retain it, and now hard ROI data. You also have a difference because we are collecting data, right? And so you, you have the data and so now people want to see proof from the data. So we have retention data. So now they want to make sure that people are retained because the data are there. And we're collecting you know, outcomes in the app and they want to see that because the data are available. Um, and, and I just think it's, a, it's, it's normal. It makes sense, but the bar is definitely different. Where do you see Propeller in terms of market segment? Do you see Propeller as a company that focuses on pulmonary disease? And they could provide many different services to help patients with pulmonary diseases. Or do you see Propeller as a sensor company and they could apply their expertise in remote patient monitoring through sensors, whether that be asthma, COPD, or acid reflux, or post-surgical care? You know, or do you see Propeller as just general chronic care disease management, but not really in acute care? How do you see Propeller fit? In your mind, where does it fit into the market? Yeah, sure. So that one's easy. We are definitely not a sensor company. Uh, we, have fought, we have fought that for many years. We, we've always said that we are a hardware-enabled software company. So we believe that the value is in the experiences that you generate and the outcomes you can deliver, and that hardware is a tool to get there. Uh, we always thought that someone would be able to create hardware uh, cheaper uh, in you know some point in the future. And so we focused a lot on the software and the engagement and the outcomes. Uh, and then um, we've always also been respiratory focused. And, and I think it's one of the reasons why we've survived and, and succeeded to, to the level we have. I, the focus of staying, it's, these are really hard problems. I am very, very skeptical of companies who say that they can create an engaging and, and worthwhile and useful experience across every disease out there. Um, I know from our experience, my own personal experience, uh, trying to build a product just for one disease is very, very hard. As you point out very correctly earlier, 
there's a ton of diversity just in that one disease. And so now you, you compound that across multiple diseases. And I think we're just not there yet. And then, you know, Propeller was acquired uh, last year by, by ResMed. And, and with that, we really have this belief uh, around the focus on, on respiratory disease. And so our belief is that you're going to end up with a, a certain number of big, fairly dominant platforms in, in verticals. So maybe it's mental health, cardiometabolic, respiratory, specialty diseases, and that we're trying to be that the winner, the, the dominant one for respiratory. And what that means, though, is you have to be an end-to-end -end solution for that patient with respiratory. And so very clearly, we have to add more things to it. We will not focus on just connected meds. Um, now, ResMed has devices that are used more towards end of life or later stages of COPD, ventilators, oxygen concentrators. Those are connected. Those will plug in. We know that there's other devices that we probably need to bring in that have signals that we're not collecting. And then other modules, there's, you know, we talk about pulmonary rehab or smoking cessation, or even, you know, a lot of these patients have comorbid depression. It doesn't mean we need to be a depression company, but it does mean we probably have to have a module or a partner that can address the full needs uh, of these patients. So our, our belief is that we will focus on respiratory but try to become the absolute most comprehensive end-to-end -end solution for any patient with respiratory out there so that we, we can win that, that part of the market. I agree with you. Uh, I think I read a, an article on TechCrunch that you wrote about this topic, and I, it really resonated with me. But my question always is, you know, how are patients going to deal with their multiple issues, right? It's, it's very common that I see patients in clinic who suffer from a gastrointestinal disorder and I browse at their medication list, and they also have a COPD inhaler. They're on a blood thinner for atrial fibrillation. They're suffering from hypertension, also some behavioral health issues. Do you think this fragmentation of digital therapeutics will be a problem if we're asking our patients and our providers to look at you know, inhaler data from one platform and dietary recommendations for their diabetes on another platform, their sodium intake for their congestive heart failure on another platform. Is there is there a point of of having this market be so fragmented? Do you think that there's going to be entrepreneurs down the line that come up with a solution to bring everything together, even though your opinion is that a one-size-fits-all approach is, is detrimental? I think, um, I think that you end up, like most things in technology, with an ecosystem or an affiliation of products that are really good at certain things but the, they stitch together. So for sure, things can't remain in isolation. But absolutely, I think it's very difficult to be the absolute best product at managing asthma and COPD, and then also be the best product at managing IBD and depression. Now, of course, if you have a patient that has all of these, they, they should have the best of breed product for those different indications. And then they have to stitch together. And I think the ways that they stitch together are through identity. So we need widespread single sign-on SSO identity matching and then through data. And that's through APIs that can talk. And so we could bring information in from those other products or uh, the front door app for a large health system that does my, where I find my labs and I schedule my visits and, and, and whatever, data can come back into there. But to think that one app is going to have the richness and diversity of features and experiences that 
we can develop for asthma or COPD, I, I think is just wrong. And if you look in the rest of your daily life, we, we don't have any one app to rule them all in anything. You probably, you probably have three or four content apps on your, on your phone right? or on your TV, Hulu and Netflix and HBO. And, you know, there's different music apps and, and we have even Facebook has unbundled itself, right? And, you know, Messenger is over here and Facebook is here. And I think it'll probably unbundle further. And if you look, you know, at other ecosystems, one of the charts we put up sometimes is if you look, maybe it's a bad example, but like the digital marketing ecosystem. I mean, this is just littered with thousands of different products, but they all figured out a way to work together, right? Because one thing can't be everything. And I, I just really strongly believe that we should be focused on really specific and great experiences for people. And we shouldn't water them down or dumb them down. Um, to try to create one really thin horizontal thing across. Now, absolutely, people will try to come up above those point solutions and integrate them all, and and that ha that's happened the you know the whole time I've been in digital health, and that'll continue to happen. But it is this race, you know. People are a lot of people are trying to leapfrog the other. We want to be the top one and then integrate you. No, we the top one and integrate you. Uh, and I think that has to shake out. But I don't think the answer is going to end up this one glorious master app that does everything super well for everyone. It's just not possible in my experience. No, I actually totally agree with that. It'd be like asking a patient, the one I just uh, mentioned to take one pill for everything. Yeah. There's no poly pill for everything, right? Like it, it's, this doesn't work. It just doesn't really work that way. I do think that we will need to have a thread that connects everything together. Like you mentioned, digital pharmacy or something where they can go and, and learn to, how to use all these different tools that we're, that we're offering to them. Chris, I want to start talking about your really interesting background that we touched on at the beginning of the episode. And in your opinion, how, have, how has your journey made you a better entrepreneur, a better founder, You know, from working in a lab to being in high finance? And then moving out to the Bay, some of the other founders that we've talked to on our show, they haven't had such a diverse background. Yeah, I feel really, you know, lucky and fortunate. I've just, um, I've always maybe made crazy decisions, but I've always just tried to go and find a role or a job that sounded really interesting and fun to me where I thought I would learn a lot and enjoy the people I was working with. And, and then when I when it was time for a new jump, I've, I've made that jump. And I, I definitely see pieces from my background, you know, come up here at, at Propeller. I mean, from, from my uh, biology, molecular cell biology days, I spent a lot of time with data and how you prove different tests. And from investment banking, I definitely learned a higher level holistic view of healthcare. Um, I had to work in med tech and life sciences and uh, managed care and services. And you kind of start to understand how they're stitched together there. I mean, I can't, I don't even want to know how many pitch decks I made, but you really learn how to like tell a story, st stitch data together to tell a compelling story. And I've seen that come up over and over here. Um, then I worked in pharma for a while. So I think that that directly translated We've done a lot of work and a lot of partnerships with with respiratory pharma companies here at Propeller, um, and I think part of that's a, we're able to speak the language. I was lucky enough to bring a friend over that I worked with at Gilead, who was in the commercial strategy and then corporate development group there, and he's been running our pharma BD efforts uh, for the last you know four or five years, 
And I think we just speak their language when they talk about MLR, med legal regulatory review, and how brutal it can be. Like we've sat in those meetings, we know what it is. We we give them confidence that we can help them get through it, and and we know their pace and and what drives them. So I absolutely see these different pieces come together uh, in in weird different ways. I feel you know really lucky to be here in this industry at this time. Like we we all collectively are very still very early in this industry. And now I think we passed the point of no return where it's very clear that digital health, whatever, however you define that is a thing and is gonna be around forever. And we're gonna have watched this industry develop from its very inception to who knows where it'll be in 20 years when hopefully we're all still working in it. It's very exciting. Can't imagine how exciting it is on the development side, but as a clinician, the opportunity to make exponential improvements in the way we care for patients is incredibly exciting. My last question for you, Chris, is advice. What advice would you give? You've had, you know, we've talked about your background. You've had an incredibly successful career. It's clear how passionate you are for this industry and for doing the best for patients. For people that are listening that are trying to get involved in digital health, they have a really good idea. They want to get it off the ground. What advice would you have to them? That's yeah, a great question. I mean, it's gotten to be a really crowded field. And so I, I, I actually think it's harder now than it was back, you know, 10 years ago when when a group of us were, were trying to get into it. So what I would say is just find that thing that you're very, very passionate about um, and become just obsessed about it and, and figure it out and stay with it. And, and don't try to like pick the market, you know, what's hot right now. Yeah, it has to come from within and then find a way to make progress. I remember um, back when I was working at Gilead and I was just a dude who wanted to somehow jump into tech and maybe start a company, I ended up doing a data challenge and working with some weird contract developer and built this little iPad app uh, that just to prove like a proof of concept, you know, literally I built this whole thing in Excel and then worked with this uh, developer to build it as an iPad app, but start making progress. You have to you have to show that you're really committed and like want to do it. And you have to stand above a lot of people that are flooding in because they think it's a big market opportunity. And so find the passion, stay with the passion. I, I believe this is just a super, super hard road. And the people that have true passion and just have to do it end up, end up there. And the people that are coming in because they, they think it's a good opportunity and healthcare is a $3 trillion bit, you know, industry and I can make a bunch of money. Those tend not to work out very well. 100% agree with you. Thanks so much, Chris. Thank you so much. This was really fun. I appreciate the opportunity.